Yeah, please grab your Bibles and turn to page uh, 359, Book of Job. We're going to spend the next uh, five weeks uh, looking at this uh, great Old Testament book. I would really identify with these lyrics of a song that should be on there. You stand in the line just to hit a new low. You're faking a smile with the coffee to go. You tell me your life's been way offline. You're falling to pieces every time. I don't need to carry on because I've had a bad day. I have one of those bad days where you're just desperate for your coffee to survive and you greet people with a fake smile. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. You're at work and your boss is rude to you. The photocopy of jams. You get stuck in traffic on the way home. A dust storm comes over and you can't go if you run. <laughs> you just had a bad day. We all have bad days, don't we? How do you cope in your bad days? Let me ask you a harder question and a much, much deeper question. How do you cope on a day of tragedy? How do you cope when real calamity hits, when real tragedy strikes? This is a lady called Leslie Oates. She's there with her husband, Stephen. He was a policeman. In the UK, three kids, three teenage kids. Uh, her bad day happened when she got a knock on the door from another policeman. And the policeman told her that her husband had been killed in the line of duty, stabbed. Godly Christian man, all involved in a local church. That was her tragedy, and she screamed, Why? Why, God? Penny married a man. Uh, she was 38 when she got married and she expected her wedding, wedding day to be the best day of her life, but actually it was the worst day of her life. Her husband claimed to be a Christian, but as soon as she married him, she realized she'd married a monster. Violent, abusive, drunk. That was her bad day. Another friend of mine is a um, godly Christian woman. Went to Bible college her and her three kids went to be missionaries in Thailand. Her bad day, her tragic day happened when she came home one day to find that locals had torched the orphanage that she was working at with her husband and three kids inside. I am a volunteer chaplain to the Homicide Victim Support Group. Last night I met in a city with about 400 people who have all had tragic days. Last night I spoke to a lady called Grace Lynch, who is the, uh, the mother of Anita Cobby, who was murdered many years ago. I sat with a guy called Peter Simpson, who is the father of Ebony Simpson, who was murdered 17 years ago. I sat with a guy called Oliver. Uh, his son, uh, Dijon, was murdered in Mykonos just a year ago. And all these people, we sat and we cried together, we wept together. And they're all asking the same question. Why, 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 why? Just looking out at you guys, I know some of you, many of us, have had really bad days. 
and we face real tragedy and real calamities in life. And my question for us is when the calamity strikes, will you, will you praise God in the midst of your suffering? Or, or will you rail against God and walk away from him? Will you still love God when the tragedy strikes? Or will you wash your hands of God? Some of us here have never really suffered. Some of us here have never really had really, really bad days. But one day you will. One day things will be taken away from you that are so precious to you, it feels like your heart's being ripped out. And I pray that these sermons on Job will, will equip you for that day. Because part of my job as a pastor is not just to react against things, but to equip you for life. So that when the tragedy does strike, you will know how to respond. And that's why we're looking at the book of Job, because the book of Job is an Old Testament book about a man who loses everything. Possession, property, children, health, all ripped away. This is a man who is not asking uh, the, the armchair questions of suffering. You know, sit back with a cough in your hand or a beer in your hand and, and pontificate the theology of suffering. That's not Job. Job is asking what I call the, the wheelchair questions of suffering, because he, he's there in the midst of it. And he is suffering and he is hurting and he's crying out, why God, why God, why? And that's why this book is so long. (laughs) Uh, 42 chapters of crying and pleading and questioning. It's written in poetry. Why do you think he writes in poetry? I think we can say things in song or say things in verse or say things in poetry and we can express feelings and express emotions that, that prose doesn't quite capture. 95% of this book is written in poetry because he's just pouring his heart out to God. And we're going to live in Job for the next uh, five weeks. And I do pray that uh, you would yeah, be equipped but more than that, that you'd actually see God and see how good he is. You may not get the answer to your questions. Job didn't. But he did see a, a God who was good and a God who was powerful. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hear the first section that John is going to read. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this book that you have kept for us. Thank you that you equip us to know how to respond in the, the really, really bad days. Lord, I pray that the things that we hear might uh, penetrate our hearts so deeply uh, that they may stick in our mind so that that when hard times come, we would know how to respond. I'll set for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's listen to to Job chapter 1, just verses 1 to 5. In the land of Ark, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. 
Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. There's Job. If you didn't get a page number, it's on page 359. Do you notice we know very little about Job? We don't know where he lived. Land of Uz, no one really knows where that is. Just some place east of Eden. We don't know when Job lived. There's no date for this book. Just a long, long time ago. We don't know much about Job's upbringing, his parents, his spiritual life. Job could just be anybody. Job is just your average guy living in this world and worshipping a great God. And that's the point. It's just an isolated event which is supposed to teach every single man, woman, and child how to respond just to the everyday things of life. But we do know this, that Job is godly and he's a good man. He, he's described as blameless in verse 1. This man was blameless. That means that he's, he's got personal integrity. You know? No one can point the finger at him and say, oh, he's a, he's a nasty bloke. He's the kind of bloke that you just say is a, a good guy. Loves his wife, loves his kids, loves his job, loves his family. He's not sinless, he's not perfect, but his lips and his life are pure and sincere and, and genuine. And he loves God. Uh, verse 1, he feared God and he shunned evil. He honored the true and living God. He turned away from doing the wrong thing. This is a genuine godly believer. And that's important, isn't it? Because straight away you know that Job is not suffering because... He's a sinner, or because he sinned in particular. He's not suffering because of some isolated sinful event in his life. He's called blameless. And he's blessed. That's how he's described. Look at his God. He's got seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. He's the greatest man among the people of the East. Remember, uh, Deuteronomy 28 says, if you obey my commands, I will bless you with land and crops and family. So in those times, if you saw a man with land and crops and family, you'd say, he's blessed by God. And if you knew Job, you'd, you'd see him as this man who was upright, who was blameless, who was blessed by God, and God himself describes him down in verse 8 as my servant. My servant. So you've got this sort of feel-good start to the book. Nice, happy story about a good and blessed man. Let's listen to the next scene, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. You get a glimpse back into heaven. It's like a cabinet meeting. God is there in his chair with all of the members of the spiritual beings entrusted with some power who bring their reports. Let's listen to uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, 
and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here's scene two, God and Satan in this kind of heavenly dialogue. Notice that in verse six he's called the Satan, literally. It's a title. He's the accuser. He is the prosecutor. And his job seems to, to be to patrol the whole earth. And God is saying to Satan, uh, Satan, what have you been up to? And Satan says, oh, just what I do every day, just roaming around the earth looking for your people, God, to devour. Uh, let me give you two shocks from these verses. Shock number one is this. This is really hard to stomach. God seems to incite Satan. God seems to, jangle, to, to dangle Job before Satan, like, like a carrot. It's a bit like, you know, if you owned a jewelry shop and uh, a thief came into a jewelry shop and ravaged your shop and the thief was coming out the back door and you as the owner bumped into the thief and you said to the thief, oh, have you thought about that, that precious diamond that I hid away in the safe? Let me show it to you. You take that as well. God seems to get his prized possession, Job, a man who is blameless and upright, and dangle it before Satan and said, have you considered my servant, Job? Now, God isn't stupid. And so the only conclusion must be that God is in some way setting Job up. God is proud of Job. God is confident that Job is a true believer. Satan's not impressed. So down in verse 8, verse 9 rather, Job says, uh, God's, uh, Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? He's kind of saying the only reason that, that Job believes is because you've been so kind to him. Of course he's going to believe if you've blessed him with children and family and cattle and you've given him everything. But his faith is not a real faith. Job is, uh, Satan's kind of saying Job is one of those you know, pokey believers if he's being rewarded in some way, of course he's going to believe. But take those things away and he'll walk away from you, God. And Satan is questioning Job's faith. And he's questioning God's integrity. But the second shock is this. It's there in verse 12. God hands Job over to Satan. God hands Job over to Satan. So you expect God to say, Satan, I don't need to show you anything. I don't need to prove anything to you, Satan. I am God. I think God says that every day. But on this occasion, verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, don't lay a finger. He's saying, you've asked me, so go on, do it. Take away everything he has just one condition you can't touch him and you've got to ask why why does God do that why does God allow that I think because he wants to show the heart of Job he's confident that for Job his faith is more than about his possessions and his cattle and his family he really does believe God and trust in God let's switch back to earth and see what happens to Job in our third reading John, do you want to bring our third reading? One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, 
messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came up and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They, they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. George, isn't it? One day, just one day in verse 13, You've got hammer blow after hammer blow. You've got this messenger who comes and says, the oxen are stolen, your servants are killed. Uh, verse 16, a natural disaster. A bushfire kills the sheep and the shepherds. Verse 17, the Chaldeans wage war, and they kill the camels and kill the servants. And then the worst blow of all, number, uh, verse 18, uh, this hurricane that ravages the city, tears down the houses and kills seven sons and three daughters. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine in one day you lose all your possessions, all your cattle, and all your kids? How are you going to respond? Think about it. What would you do if that happened to you? I find verse 20 extraordinary. This Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. That is the right response, grieving and mourning and sobbing and just this desolation. But then he fell to the ground in worship and says these verses which are read at so many funerals and yet they are some of the most reverent, extraordinary words to come out of the voice of any human being. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. God gave, God takes away, and whatever happens in life, I'm going to praise the name of my God. Can you just sort of sense and feel and taste the the reverence of this guy and the trust? It's just jaw-dropping. At this stage, in his walk with God, there is... There's no shouting, there's no anger, there's no real question. That will come later, we'll, we'll live through that for the next three or four weeks. But at this stage, it's a silent, sad, trusting God. I don't know about you, but that shocks me. Because I'm not sure 
that I would say those words. And I'm sure it shocked Satan. This man does seem to, to, to worship God. He does seem to trust God. We're going to move through to uh, chapter 2. I'll, I'll just tell you what happens rather than reading it. Uh, there's another second test in chapter 2. And Satan comes again. And he says, "Ah, oh, he just trusts you, God, because you've taken away things. But if you take away his health, if you take away things that really impact him personally, uh, then he'll curse you. But he doesn't. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife, she's never named, just his wife, said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. I think that's the reaction we all have, isn't it? That's a natural reaction. And Job turns to his wife and says, You're talking like a foolish woman. Listen to this. Shall we accept good things from God and and not trouble? Wife, look at all the great things that God has given us. Are we supposed to just worship God when things are good, but when things are bad, we curse him? No. Good thing comes from God, and so do the hard times. At this stage, I like to imagine there's kind of an applause in heaven. (laughs) Because this is a faithful man. This is a man who trusts God even in calamity. I want to give you four implications of Job 1 and 2 this morning. The first one is this. It's a warning. Satan's aim is to destroy our faith in God. Satan's aim is to destroy our faith in God. Satan is a reality. Call him what you want, the devil, the tempter, the accuser, the evil one. Satan does exist. Yes, there's one God, and God is in control. And yes, Satan is subject to God. But God is not the only spiritual power at work in this world. There is a heavenly realm. 1 Peter 5, he said, uh, Be self-controlled and alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And I know some churches, they overemphasize Satan, and it's all about binding Satan and overcoming the evil one and delivering you from this. But other churches, I think a bit like us, we hardly ever talk about Satan. And perhaps we've slipped into this mindset where we think life is just about things that we can understand and life is just about things that we can see and touch. And we've stopped being aware there's a spiritual realm called Satan. Now Job 1 makes it very clear that Satan is at work and his aim is to destroy the faith of the believer. John Piper helpfully says that Satan has two weapons, one called pleasure and one called pain. And Satan uses pleasure. All the good things in life, all the pleasures of life. You've got your wife, you've got your kids, you've got your house, you've got your job, you've got your money, you've got all the good things in life. And with all these pleasure things in life, you don't need God. And so you start to drift away from God. But sometimes he uses pain. They take away that job and you start to question. Take away your wife and you start to question God. Take away your health have the cancer scare, and you shout, why, why, why? And I'm asking us as a church to be real. There's a spiritual battle happening. Be alert, be awake. 
But here's the comfort. God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. Yes, Satan has power, but God is the powerful one. And nothing happens in this world without God's permission. The dust storm can't blaze without God's permission. The bushfires can't blaze without God's permission. The biopsy can't be bad news without God's permission because God is sovereign. God is on his throne. Some Christians have this, this weird view of God's sovereignty. And so there's, there's two thrones in heaven. Satan's on one and God is on the other. There's one throne in heaven. And God's always on that throne. And it's not as though Satan comes and pushes God off the throne. And so Satan's on the throne for a while. And then God pushes Satan off the throne. God is always on his throne. Because nothing Satan can do is outside of God's control. Did you notice how how God put limits on Satan's power? So chapter 1, verse 12. Very well then, everything he has in your hands, but on the man himself, don't lay a finger. It's the same again in chapter 2, verse 6. Very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. He kind of puts limits on on the power of Satan. Luther Luther describes Satan as God's Satan. uh, Like a, a Satan on a leash. A lion, but he's a lion on a leash. And, and God can rein him in or give him some slack at any time. And to me, that is a massive, massive comfort. Yeah, I may not get the answers as to why. But to know that my God never loses control is a massive comfort. God never abdicates power, but God does give permission. And sometimes that permission is so terrible that you do, do scream out, Why? But you've got to cling on to this truth. God is always in control. There's a popular book written by a guy called Howard Kushner. It's called this. When bad things happen to good people. And in this book, God is kind of presented as doing his best. Like a game of chess. Never quite sure what the next move is going to be. But he, he'll respond to it accordingly. That's not the God of the Bible. God's never taken by surprise. Often when people come to me and they're going through tragic times, I remember a woman sitting in my office whose husband had walked out after 30 years of marriage, and it's kind of like, she's kind of saying, oh, well, God was in charge in a good time, but now Satan's in charge. I said, no, no. God's in charge even now, even in the bad times. And I hear so many Christians who say things like, you know, God didn't mean you to lose your wife, or God didn't mean you to get cancer, or God didn't mean you to lose your job, or God didn't mean this to happen, as though God had no control over it. God is absolutely sovereign. And that is why Satan can say the amazing words in verse 20, uh, Job can say the amazing words in verse 21. Look at it. The Lord gave... And Satan has taken away? No. Verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. God gives, God takes away. God gives good things, God takes away good things. And whatever happens, may the name of the Lord be praised. It's almost like you can hear Job saying, the Lord blew away my house. The Lord killed my cattle. The Lord took away my kids. 
The Lord gave me that skin disease. But may the name of God be praised. Do you get it? Behind Satan stands a God who is good. We don't understand all the decisions he makes. You'll still ask why and you'll still cry. And sometimes God seems to give terrible, terrible permission. And there are decisions made in heaven that I can't fathom. But what are you going to do? Demand that you get an answer to your questions and put God in this nice, trite theology in a box where Satan's the one to blame? The comfort for me is that I worship a God who is not impotent, but is all-powerful. Take away God's sovereignty, and you're left with nothing. Third implication. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. Not all suffering is directly related to, to specific sin. If you're suffering right now, it's not necessarily directly related to any sin. It might be. It might be the effect of your selfishness or your pride or your materialism, but it might not be. Because suffering is not that simple. Remember the megaphone of Job 1? Blameless. A blessed man. Innocent, if you want. And I have to say, many uh, a true believer, the strongest, maturest Christians I know, have suffered the most. So I'm warning us against that easy equation between suffering and sin. It's not that simple. Remember Jesus when he met a man born blind? And people said, who sinned? Uh, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And they said, no one. Just living in a fallen world. There is such thing as innocent suffering. And to know that my salvation and, and my relationship with God and your relationship with God came through the suffering of the innocent one, the most innocent suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the comfort. Lastly, trust God as you weep. Trust God as you weep. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what calamities you will go through, what griefs you will suffer, loss of a child, loss of a job, loss of dignity, loss of a parent, broken relationship, loss of security. Whatever you go through in life, please, please, please do these two things. Weep. You've got to express your grief. When calamity comes, the tears should flow. Look at verse 20 again. Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He is mourning. He is grieving. And that's the right response. People say that English people are the stiff upper lip. I reckon Aussies are worse. We don't cry. We might cry in private, but never in public. I hope this church will be a place that you can come to in your grief in your calamities, and you can weep openly with people. Because that's the right response. It's okay to cry. It's possible to have a deep confidence in God and still weep like a baby. But in the midst of that, please, please trust God. You may never understand why. You may never get answers. But hold on to that truth. God is good. God is your rock. 
God is your refuge. And be like Job, verse 20, 21. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, and may the name of the Lord be praised. Saying, you know, my, my guts are being ripped out. My heart's breaking. I'm so sad. I'm so lonely. But the one thing I can rely on is that God is God. God is God. And I wonder whether you can say that. Here's the challenge. God, you can strip away my family. God, you can take away my loved ones. God, you can take away my health. And in the midst of that, Lord, I'll still trust you because you're God. Now, part of the, the joys of preaching is that you get to equip people, not just in the midst of suffering, but for future suffering. And so I do pray that when calamity comes to you, that you'll be like Job, tearful yet trusting, howling yet, yet holding on to God. And with the, the faintest of cries in the midst of your sobbing, you will just hear the words, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Let me pray. Let me give you a moment by yourself to reflect on those remarkable words. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, and may the name of the Lord be praised. Father, I want to thank you that you are all-powerful, that you are the almighty one, and you're the one who comforts us, even in the midst of calamity. Uh, Lord, when we are hurting and when we're in agony, Lord, as we scream, why, 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 Lord, I pray that you would be our rock and our refuge, and that your controlling your sovereignty will be the thing that we hold on to. I'll say for Jesus' sake.